Well, hello and welcome to the Peter Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer, and on this week's show, I talk to basketball great Andrew Bogut, who's gone from being an NBA superstar to a slam dunking investor, shooting hoops with some of the up and coming listed companies on the ASX. I look at his basketball success. How did he do it? to how he became a hotshot moneymaker. And then we meet Australia's first Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, Marcia Griffin, who has been a serial business starter and now coaches CEOs. Let's kick off and meet Andrew Bogut. Now, for people who've never come across Andrew before, and you've probably lived your life under a rock if that's the case, but just let me give you a, a quick rundown. I know my producer asked, her first question was to get Andrew himself to say this, but I don't need him to say this. He just needs to sit back and reflect upon it, which I guess he does all the time. He played NBA from 2005 to 2018, 13 or 14 years, won the NBA championship in 2015, all-NBA team 2010, NBA all-rookie first team, NBA block leader 2011, NBL MVP 2019, National College Player of the Year in 2005, All-American Team 2005, First Australian number one draft in 2005, and was dumped from the under-15 Victorian junior team when he was 15, clearly. And mate, when I read all this, I had to ask you, Andrew, was that a really good kick in the pants? Because you seem to have just accelerated ever since you got that kick in the pants as an under-15-year-old. Yeah, it was under 18s actually. Um, yeah. But yeah, look, it's it definitely, I, w- I wouldn't change the path that I took. I think if I made that team, um, I probably wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now, to be quite honest with you. So I think it was it was much needed. And I faced a lot of that throughout my junior career. So um, it was, yeah, I think if it was smooth sailing for me from a young, young age, mm. uh, I probably wouldn't have been a professional. Uh, and I noticed in my reading that there were a number of um, influential um, uh, Yugoslavian European basketball players who had some impact as mentors for you. Was that important to actually, once you realised that you had to lift your game after being dropped, that having really great influences? I know when I interviewed Jerry Harvey and I asked him how he went from being, you know, on his own admission, a bit of a plotter um, until becoming you know, one of the best retailers the world's ever seen. He said hanging out with the right people really made a big impact on him. Was that important to you? Yeah, of course. When you're um, hanging with the best, I think you um, you just naturally get better whether you like it or not. And that was the main decision of why I want to get to the US as quickly as possible mm. through the college route was um, without, you know, playing anyone it got to a point in australia where i thought i was the, i was the best and i need someone to kick my ass mm. to put it my blank and, and that's why i was rushing to get over to the states to to experience not being the best and then having to continue to, to work my way up that ladder mm. what was it like as we we've all seen the the college films that america you know puts out nearly every year what is it like that is it is it for an australian to to experience college life is it like like the way it's portrayed in films? Oh, it's pretty similar. I think we see a lot of the the foolery that goes goes on in frat houses and sorority houses, which is a little bit different. I wasn't involved in those, but it's it's pretty similar. Look, it's you support your school, whether you're from out of state or somewhere else. If you're going to that school, that's your school. Um, it's, it's a rowdy environment. The students, you know, they're, they're generally drinking before they come to the game, so they're 
you know, they're pretty, pretty loud and obnoxious on the road, especially, which is a great atmosphere to play basketball or football in or whatever you're playing there. But um, it's similar to an extent, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say Utah was um, the epitome of those movies because Utah was a bit more um, kind of, kind of relaxed and chilled and a bit more of a family atmosphere as much as the university could be. And that was strategic in my decision to go there. I knew if I went to, you know, one of these party schools, I probably <laughs> would have been on a plane back back to Australia within a year or two. So um, that was kind of planned out. Yeah. Is it staggering to see the importance of college basketball and college football in America? And, and why is it so important? I think it's just a cultural thing. I think um, it's probably the last – well, at least it was the last sport left that was amateur, quite unquote. Now with the amounts of money involved, we've come to realise that the the fellas in the suits are making all the money and the players are making zero because you can't get paid as a student athlete. So that's caused some issues and it, continue, it will continue to cause issues. But I guess it's, it's supposed to be the most purest form of sport in America when you compare it to the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL. And I think that's why a lot of people like it. And then not only that, as alumni, you have 20,000, 30,000 people um, every year they go to that school and then become an alumni and, and support that school forever. So you basically have fans joining your, your team because mm. they go to school there. So it's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty cool cultural thing um, and it obviously has its pros and cons like everything. Mm. The thing about um, comparing sport in Australia to sport in America, my son went and play, he, he played first grade rugby here and went to play in America and one of his um, teammates was a guy who played NFL for, you know, eight years or something like that. And his first game of rugby, he scored three tries. And, uh, and Marty said to him, well, you know, what do you think about rugby? He said, I love it. He said, you know, you scored three tries. He said, it's the first time in my life I've actually caught a ball because <laughs> he's been a defensive player his whole yeah. life. But there also, it, was, it seemed like there was, there was no grade below. Like you're either in the top team and there's a team for you, but if you're not, it's not so graded like it is like, like AFL. You can go from VFL to AFL and go down the park and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't seem to be that, that same kind of structure. Is that right? Within college or professional? Well, from, from college to professional. Like, yeah, college definitely doesn't. I mean, you either make your your team that you're the school that you're going to, or, or you don't. Um, with professionals now, the NBA has got the they call it the G League, which is the minor leagues now, which has become a pretty good league, and you can actually make a living. You know, there's guys getting paid a hundred thousand, hundred fifty thousand to be in the minor league, so you can actually live off it. Um, whereas ten years ago, you couldn't really live off it. So the NBA does a good job. I know Major League Baseball does. The NFL is an interesting one. They try to do NFL Europe. I think. Many years ago, that did, that didn't really work out. Um, I'm not even sure what their minor league system looks like. They just have these massive squads, um, and then only a certain number can play on the weekend. But they have they have a lot of guys that are on their roster, so it's generally training time. They don't really have a, a minor league as per se. They have the indoor football league, um, which which does okay. Mm. But yeah, as far as the NFL, it's, it's completely different to AFL and, and NRLs. As far as you know, they don't really blood guys in the reserves as per se um but the nba's done a fantastic job and the and major league baseball of making sure that they have you know the minor league or the reserves as we call it in australia do you sometimes pinch yourself and think i would never have been what i am unless i was forced to play in the most competitive environment in the world when it comes to basketball oh no doubt um you know, look, as a young fella, for me, the dream was to just play in the NBL and play in Australia. Like, I thought at a, as a 
11, 12-year-old, if someone would give me money to play basketball, mm. the best thing ever. It didn't matter how much it was. I was like, you're telling me you're going to give me money to play what I love doing. i take it in a heartbeat. And then the NBA was kind of, I've always said on record, it was always a fantasy or a pipe dream. It was, it was, it was a, a movie for me that was, you know, I didn't think it was realistic to get to. And fortunately for me and a lot of hard work and, and a few lucky bounces here and there, I ended up playing over there. So um, it is surreal still and it goes quick. When you're in the moment, it doesn't. But looking back now, one of those old fellows that can harp on the back in my day stories and um, I'm at that point in my career now. So it's um, looking back and kind of really reliving all of this. Um, it's been pretty good. Um, there was that famous movie, White Men Can't Jump. Was that movie wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think so these days. But, yeah, I mean, look, the American fellows are definitely great A when it comes to athleticism and power and strength. But, um there are some Europeans that pop up every now and then, but yeah, interesting movie, and I think I could jump okay for a, for a white fella. <laughs> and it seems to me that injuries didn't make life easy for you. But is that the condition that most of the great players in America suffer from? That they're good, they're great players, but when they're not playing at their absolute best, it's injuries are really getting getting in the way. Yeah, to an extent. Look, I had some. I just had some real unfortunate ones. Like I did two. There was two or three injuries where I didn't properly. Like they weren't half-assed, small <laughs> little tears. They were car accident equivalent injuries that I was out, you know, for 12 odd months. So that's just hard to bounce back from. And the mental toll that people don't see with professional athletes and injuries is that the, the toll it puts on yourself, your family, your kids, your wife, um, whoever it may be. And it becomes Groundhog Day where you're doing something every day with your rehab where you're strengthening and you're not seeing immediate results. So as an athlete, it becomes very frustrating and, and then the mental health part of it comes in. So that's what a lot of people don't see behind the scenes. And that's why, you know, Steve Kerr, Golden State Warriors coach, he always used to tell us, you guys aren't paid these big contracts just to play basketball. You pay these big contracts because of all the bullshit that people don't know about that you have to deal with. And no one's going to feel sorry for us because we're making money, but it's, not being able to go to a shopping centre on a whim sometimes, not being able to go in a public place without being swamped. It's all the injuries. It's waking up in the morning and, you know, hobbling to the bathroom to, to brush your teeth because you're sore. And it's all that kind of stuff as well. So it was always a good point that he made back then and it's always kind of stuck with me. Were you lucky to have uh, a coach slash mentor like that guy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, Steve was great. I think his, his biggest strength where basketball and I think pro sports in general is changing towards the X's and O's and strategic part of any given game is still very, very important. But what's become almost more important is people management. Um, it's just like running a good business. Um, team morale, knowing that um, I can yell at this guy and he'll respond, but if I do the same thing to this guy, he might shut down or vice versa. This guy needs this love. This guy needs more hugs than the other guy. You know, um, and Steve yeah. really understood that. And his people management, um, especially in the NBA and professional sports, you've got guys making $20, $30, $40 million a year. Egos play a big part. Um, pride and um, arrogance comes into play. So if, if you have a coach that can't manage that, you could have the best X's and O's in the world. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything. You're still going to lose games. So you've got to really manage that. And Steve, was, he was phenomenal at, or elite at, at his day-to-day people management for the most yeah. part. I, I know when I interviewed John Maxwell, the uh, American business leadership speaker, he talked about how uh, he saw John Wooden, um, the famous college basketball coach, as a, a very significant um, milestone 
coach in American, American basketball. I'm sure you've come across him and, and what he said, but he kind of said you, you have to create good citizens first. Um, is, that, is that something that was drilled into you when you you're playing that level? Yeah, I think that's um, a lot of Australian sport is based on that for the most part. You want to do well individually, but you still, it doesn't mean, to me, it doesn't mean much if I've scored 30 points and we've lost. So I think that was instilled early into me. You still want to perform well and have your pride individually, but you want to win the game at the end of the day. So that might mean sometimes you're not playing well, take a back seat, or there's a matchup problem where you not, might not play as much as you like. And that's a hard pill to swallow as a professional athlete or an athlete in general. But yeah, it's definitely a, a thing that we do better in Australia, I think. America's much harder because of the money involved and, you know, it's it's competitive on the court against other teams. It's even just as competitive within your own locker room. You know, you're competing with a guy, you get an extra rebound per game, um, you might get an extra million dollars a year. Mm. So sometimes there's guys competing for stats. So there's all these games within the games and, and, and side shows going on that people don't even realise or know about. Mm. And that's just because of the... The amount of money that's thrown around in the league right now is is just crazy. Yeah, the the link between you know sporting um, legends and you know business leaders in America uh, seems to me at one stage of my life seem much stronger in America than Australia. Uh, I, I think that's changing. I know the the coach of the the, the Roosters in in the rugby league and. In Australia, Trent Robertson, he reads Jim Collins, he reads uh, all these business uh, book um, uh, famous legends. Have you been influenced in that, in that respect? Have you read business books and bi- biographies of very successful people in business, uh, which you've you've learnt something from? Not not anyone specifically. Um, I read a lot on on the internet um, when it comes to whatever I'm interested in at the time. And I got to a point where it was probably leads you into your next question where um, I had a financial advisor manage all my finances coming out of college. I couldn't tell you how to, how to do X, Y, Z financially. Like I was yeah. blind. blind You're normal. Yeah. 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 I was a young kid coming out of college who was just eating two minute noodles and now I've been given, you know, $5 million for my first year in the NBA. I had no idea what to do with it. So then it was a case of figuring all that out. And I had a financial guy who was really good. And he kind of managed, you know, my day-to-day even as far as paying bills and, and keeping pressure off me there that I just didn't have to waste time doing while I'm settling into a new life. Mm. But it got to a point where I'll, I'll be meeting with him about my financials, where's my money invested, what's going on. And, and some of the jargon, you know, financial jargon can be pretty intimidating for someone who doesn't, you know, isn't adap- ad- adapted to that, yeah. that yeah. part of the you know, business. So it really started to really pissed me off and started to eat at me because I'd, I'd have to stop and be like, hey, hang on, what is that? You know, break down diversification exactly. How many different pools are there? Break down, you know, all that kind of stuff. How can I get a tax benefit here? How does that work? And then on top of that, there's differences in, in American and Australian law. So that was confusing in itself with taxes and all that kind of mm. stuff. So I got to a point where I um, went and did a, an online university course and basically, you know, wanted to, wanted to better myself. And the mm. course was called personal wealth management so it was it was perfect so i wanted to get to a point yeah. where i didn't need my financial advisor i did the course studied up on it for about a year and then told my financial advisor i don't need you i don't need your financial advice anymore i just need you to do my taxes and he was happy which mm. is rare because you know these guys there's a lot of a lot of shonks over there that um mm. professional athletes but he was happy he's like that's fantastic greatest story i've you know for an athlete i've managed 
way to get it done yourself. And now I can sit in the room with him and go back and forth with financial jargon and totally get it. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so good when you're able to comprehend what your, what your wealth is and what are the potential pathways you can go down and the kind of returns you can get by selecting the right paths and being diversified, whatever. So it must, it must have been very um, uplifting just to get to that level where you felt comp- competent and confident enough to do it yourself. Yeah, and I got to a point where I'm managing everything myself. You know, I do everything myself, all my real estate stuff. I've, I've, I've drafted leases. I've done commercial leases. I've done residential leases. I've done negotiated the back and forth with tenants. Like, and a part of me probably now doesn't need to do that. I'll probably, um, you know, put that job to someone else. But I wanted to, I wanted to do it. I wanted to be in the trenches and, and learn so that when I'm discussing that in the future, I've, I've been there and understand how it all goes. And that's the only way you learn. I've made mistakes along the way. Mm. And that's probably the most important part of all this. Like I did the study and read, but I made I made so many mistakes, and that that's the harshest reality and, and the the harshest learning tool is is losing money and making a mistake because you're not going to do it again. Yeah, you're going to better yourself and you're going to do more research next time. And, and I think that that blend of things has really helped me financially. Yeah, uh, I've noticed that you're you're getting involved in um, listed startups and. Uh, the, the first uh, basketball, local basketball player who uh, I came across was Luke Longley, who invested in Dr. Fiona Woods' business. Uh, do you remember Fiona Woods? She was the doctor who saved all the Bali bombing victims with her plastic spray on skin. And that became basically a public listed company. But Luke was a, an investor, and Andrew Vlahoff as well. They were both investors in her first, her first business. Uh, I, fair, I, I guess that didn't fare too well. Didn't go too well. <laughs> yeah. No, it went well. It went well. It did. Yeah, yeah. It, it became a listed company, and it, uh, it, I think it's under a different name now. But I think they did. Okay, I'll ask him because I'm good friends with Luke, so I, I was, I wasn't hopeful, but I was hoping something something didn't go too well, so I could give him a couple little elbows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, look, I'd love you to if you find out. Please let me know because the story I wrote in those days that he was a foundation investor in it. And yep. and the and the company has changed its name, but I got a sneaking suspicion it's, it's listed on the US on the Nasdaq now. But I'll let Dr. you investigate. I'll write it down yeah. and I'll, I'll ask him. Yeah, Dr. Fiona Woods, and she was also Australian of the Year as well. Fantastic um, doctor. Anyway, mate. Um, so let's talk about you and getting involved in startups. Um, how many have have you been involved in? Oh, there's been a fair few. So um, in Australia, I've come up to. I think I'm up to five or five or six. I'm in talks right now with another, um, and then in the states, I'm involved in a, with a fair few as well. Um, but look, they are for the most part they are high risk, as we know. Yep. Um, you know, you, you don't know where a company. But half the people that have invested, a good friend of mine was an initial investor in Uber, um, Jason Calacanis, and mm. he, you know, he 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 would tell you he didn't know it was going to go gangbusters like it is today. Yep. Some of it's strategic, knowing what to look for. Some of it's sheer luck, and most of it is sheer luck. Most of it is just you've invested in the right company. Um, the negotiation doesn't mean anything really, how much you got in for, the percentages, the numbers, but that company's just gone gangbusters, and now you're, you've gone from a millionaire to a billionaire, and that's usually how a lot of it happens. But then once those guys are billionaires, they, they become multi-billionaires because they've, you know, they've, they've had a lot of experience in the field. And that's kind of where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm taking, I've made some mistakes, but... I've enjoyed the ride, and um, like anything, I'm diversified, so I'm not I'm not putting all my eggs in the startup basket. That's for sure. Yeah, I think the the one I read about recently was Listing Loop. So how's that done? 
Listing Loop's still early. They're doing pretty well. They're, um, they're, they're, I think, just in Australia, there's two big players in the real estate market, as we know, REA and, and Domain, and I think, I think it'll be something that'll, that'll shake them up a little bit. And we've actually seen, um, I think it's REA, try to do a little spin-off similar to what we're doing. So that's good science. Yeah. So when we have, you know, the, the big boys paying attention to what we're doing, Good sign. So it's 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 interesting startup. It's um, you know, you can basically list the, you, yourself essentially on, on a you know through a website. Um, agents can get a commission for 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 bringing on other agents within the website. So there's a lot of bonuses for for people, and it just doesn't. We, we had a big spike during the pandemic just because people that were listing their homes we're scared to put down three, four grand for an advertising campaign or 1500 or two grand. Whereas our fees are, are, are very, very low. They're in, in the hundreds, the mid hundreds, you know, they never really hit a thousand dollars. So people, we saw a big influx of people coming to do it themselves because, you know, it's a big investment to put for, for, for a family of four, you know, you put a $2,500 down for an advertising campaign and then don't sell your house. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Mm. And so th is the competitive advantage of listing loop, the cost, cost is a big one. Yep, and then just the way we involve agents, um, where they actually they actually have some skin in the game if they get involved. Mm. So, and then obviously off market, we, we there's a lot of people that want to list off market these days, even though technically it is on market because it's list, it's a ton of forum. But um, a regular person can't just go in and and view it. You have to you have to kind of subscribe to the the platform, um, and then. Let's say you wanted to find a place in in Bondi. You want a three bedroom, um, three bath. You put all those specifications in, and you'll get pinged as soon as something gets listed as well. Which which isn't really a something that's available on REA or Domain at the moment. Um, and we think that's a really good feature. And then spin off of that is everything's data driven these days. So we think that we'll get a lot of data if we get fifteen hundred people that want that same property as you. We're going to go to a developer and say. You know, if you build a if you build a nice apartment building here with these kind of specs, we think you, you'll sell it out. So there's a lot of side plays within Listing Loop, and mm -hmm. that's where the world's going. Anything that you, any startup that you're involved in, the analytics and data that you get from that startup is almost as valuable as a service you're providing. Um, and that's what we've seen with a lot of a lot of different products these days. Mm. You, you you made reference to your investment in property. Um, um, what what kind of property portfolio do you hold? Uh, it's mixed. It's um, I don't know the exact ratio. I'm guessing it's probably sixty, probably sixty five, thirty five weighted towards commercial. Yeah. Um, so not not doing too well right now. <laughs> the last year can say that. Yeah. Um, with everything going on, but yeah, I look for properties that are freeholds. I don't touch. I try not to touch things that have. A body corp for the most part, or that have a strata where you have to get permission to build by your neighbour, and they, mm. I try to get freehold properties, and try to find commercial properties that are near residential zone that have possibly a chance to do some some things with down the track if, if zoning changes. So I've made a few little gambles there, but they also have tenants, um, mostly cafes. To be honest with you, um, mm. I've really liked, especially in Melbourne, the cafe culture is huge. So generally, good tenants. Pay them in on time. They're doing pretty well. So that's the commercial side of things. And then I have a few um, residential things, which were a few places I actually lived in at one point that I've just turned into into rental properties. That I just I try not to sell any properties that I've accumulated along the way and just try to stay in for the long haul. But um, 
that's been it's been a fun ride learning about how all that works and and because I was once a I was once a tenant and now being a landlord you learn the other side of things so yeah. it's it's been a good journey. Yeah, I um a couple of years ago bought a shop in Albert Park in Melbourne, which I haven't been able to see since March twenty two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be seeing it uh, uh, at Christmas time when I'm in Melbourne, but. Um, yeah, it is interesting. Um, commercial has struggled, but there's probably buying opportunity. And I know my attitude towards stocks, uh, Andrew, is that um, sometimes the best time to buy a quality stock is when everyone doesn't want to buy it. And uh, there's probably some good commercial um, dealers out there at the moment. Yeah, I bought, well, with that conversation with stocks, I bought it. I was pretty active this last six months with mm. just buying it, just because, you know, there was, there, was, there was scare in the market, you know. So, soon as this thing started in April and, and May, I set a bunch of buys on, um, usually lower than what they were trading at on that day and a bunch of them hit and within six months I've done very, very well. So um, I think just knowing that, as you said, when things are looking grim outside, look out your window and with everything going on in the world, the market reacts to that early on and then it recovers generally historically and if you know kind of what to look for, you'll, you'll be okay. Yeah. What's the, the most recent stock purchase you've made? The most recent, um, the one I've done the best with was a, a penny mining stock called Degree Mining. <laughs> so you, you, you chase those pe- penny dreadful mining stocks? At, uh, I'm diversified. Like I, I, have, I have buy set for – so my strategy with blue chip stocks mm. is I'll have buy set for um, basically 15 20% of what they're worth today. Mm. <laughs> so no matter if, – if they run into some problems and, and, it, and it's – you know, drops plummets. I'll pick it up because it's a blue chip. I like it's, if it's top one hundred listed. I'm usually I've usually got some sort of buy on it. Mm. And but also I got a it was a tip from a friend. Just said like, look at this stock. You know, and um, I did, and it, it went from it, it's gone up like I think it's gone up two thousand percent. Like out of control. So obviously they've they've struck, they struck they struck gold or something out in WA, and okay. that's that's basically recovered the losses that. I had early in the p- pandemic was just that one stock has recovered it. And I didn't <laughs> huge amount of money yeah. relative to what I'm worth. It was just speculative, and I put small amounts in the speculative stuff. But just one example of one I got really, really, really lucky on. Uh, well, one, one stock that fits the bill. Are you prepared to gamble on the Australian-Chinese relationship and buy Treasury wine estates because its its share price has halved? I bought. I actually have. Yeah, so have I. We might have a bit of a wait, mate, but it's pretty good company. I mean, we get Japan involved, which which is rumoured. We would have a good agreement, trade agreement with them. Mm. It's still quality wine at the end of the day. Okay, China's buying power is huge, mm. but it's a quality, world-class wine. People around the, other parts of the world will, will buy it, and I, I think even locally we buy it. I think it's going to be okay. Okay, let's hope we make money together, mate. <laughs> so... Um, in summary, if you know you look back on your career and what you you learnt in sport, playing at the highest level, and the changes that you went through over that time, do you think the impact of that period in your life has had a a, a big impact on the way that you've become very professional in your approach to money? Because as a, as a normal person, you, as I've talk to you it's been quite apparent you've been, you've embraced a lot of professional ways about you and I'm, I'm asking you know do you think your your life as a professional sportsman has had a big impact on you in that respect I oh, no doubt I think as a sportsman you um, you learn from winning you learn from losing you learn from setbacks and failures and it's 
it's exactly the same. It really correlates well to business. That's why a lot of businesses get sports people in at all because it correlates beautifully. Um, and, and that's been exactly it. I'm, like I said earlier, I've had business partnerships that have failed. I've bought, you know, I bought Telstra at one point. Come on, Telstra lift. Like it's, it's yeah. killing, it's killing yeah. my portfolio. You know, I've, I've had properties that haven't done as well and that have done well. And then it's a matter of learning from your mistakes. I think the biggest taboo in society is, is failure, the F word. Yeah. Because I think it's a good thing. I think failure, um, it's, it's going to give you an opportunity to, 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 to fix the failure. And, and failure is not going to be your friend that tells you, you know, when you're doing something wrong or something's going bad, no, you'll be right, mate, you'll be fine. You know, it tells you what you want to hear. Failure is blunt as you can get. Mm. And if you fail, most, I'm sure most business people you talk to have failed at one point in their life, maybe two or three times I've heard some people have gone bankrupt and then now they're billionaires. You learn from those failures. You jot down some notes. Why did I fail? What do I need to do differently? Whether it's to do with basketball, investing, whatever it is. And I think it ends up working out at, at some point in your life. And I follow that mantra. And I think being a professional athlete of that routine, adapting on the fly, I failed last game. How do I, not, how do, I do better next game? I think I transitioned that into, into finance. And I did my study. I did a lot of, a lot of reading and studying and wanted to better understand it. I get, I get really pissed off if someone's talking to me about something, whether it's something as stupid as how to plant a veggie garden and I don't know, I'll go, I'll go home and I'll, I'll go on the internet and yeah. just an hour or two on, on reading. And I think, I really think you don't have an excuse these days to say, I don't know, mm. you know, so with what we have available with technology and what it's brought, it has its pros and cons, but the pro is you can jump online and I can, t I can find out how to cook, a brand new meal on YouTube in nine minutes and go and do it in my kitchen. Like that was not available 10 years, 15 years ago. And that's kind of my mantra. I, got, I jump online and I research. Mm. I guess 20, 30 years ago, your mum was probably cooking you good Croatian food in those days. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing, mate. Um, I brought up John Maxwell earlier and he, he wrote a great book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I, I emceed him when he came to Australia. That's why I, I, I got a bit influenced by him. But he, he said the most Im, the most impactful day of his life was when he had a he had a mentor and he was at college at the time and the mentor said to him, um, John, what is your plan for self-improvement? And uh he, Maxwell said, I didn't have one. He said, I was 21. He said, I had goals, he said, but they weren't written down, all that sort of stuff. Do you think that's one of the, the, the big lessons from hanging out in that professional environment, that there is this overwhelming force that you have to be committed to self-improvement? If you don't do it, things just don't happen. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. And you, you know, as a professional athlete, what your strengths and weaknesses are. And that's what off-season the four, the really good players will come back um, after an off season and try to address those those weaknesses. It's the same as business in business. It's the same in your personal life. If you're you know you're having too much chocolate at night, you know how to address that. The problem is people implementing a way to to, to address it. And I think the biggest thing I tell people is um, you don't have to put your goals next to your mirror like some people. So whatever works for you, but but write down what's your short term goal. What's your goal for tomorrow? you know, this week, this month, what's your medium-term goal, which can be anywhere between, you know, a year and three, four, five years, and what's your long-term goal? Where do you want to be in five to ten years? Ten years usually the max. And you write those down and revisit them. You don't have to look at it every day like some people do, but I think just jotting things down for me on paper like helps me rethink it and really engage in it. And most people most people that are successful do that in some format. It doesn't have to be exactly the way I played it out, but they have 
they have some sort of, um, you know, mantra written somewhere where they'll go back to in times of need and even through the ups and downs. Andrew Bogut, great to talk to you, mate. Um, you've done fantastically for uh, Australian sport, what you achieved. And I think down the track, you'll probably do some great things for Australian business as well. Great to talk to you. Nice. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, Peter. Hi, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that women retire with 47% less superannuation than men? Yeah, I did, Claire, because for something like 30 years, I've been trying to get women to be real and men to be really educated about their super. And I think it's been terrible to think that women's superannuation is so low. Exactly. But did you also know that one in two women see investment industry communications as being complicated? A large number feel intimidated, and about one in five find them tailored to men. Yeah. I haven't seen that that data, mm. um, but I'm not surprised. I think a lot of men get intimidated by by money and super and all that sort of stuff. But one thing I have learned over the years is that when women get really interested, they're better at managing money than men. Exactly. Oh, I see how quickly you came in on that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we're aiming to do with Tilly Money. Yep. So Tilly Money is a place to come and learn about money, how to understand it, harness it, and importantly, how to grow it. So we're trying to help women achieve their financial independence by removing any disparity in the accessibility of financial knowledge. So Peter, visit tillymoney.com.au where you can read our articles, sign up to the newsletter, or listen to the podcast. Isn't it amazing that for someone like me, who my whole life I've been inspired by my wife Maureen Jordan mm. um, that she's come up with an idea like Tilly. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> Joining me now is Marcia Griffin. Marcia is a, I guess you might call an addicted businesswoman uh, and you'll come to learn uh, how come and why I say that. She's the former founder uh, or former uh, owner and founder of Griffin Plus Row, which she's recently sold. Um, she's an author, uh, an economist, business owner, uh, and uh, was the first Telstra businesswoman of the year in 1995. Marcia, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Lovely to be here. So, Marcia, you have a history of starting businesses and then um, selling them or moving on. Tell us about the first business you started, which was the basis of your Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award. Well, Peter, that was Polar Cosmetics, P-O-L-A Cosmetics, a huge Japanese company. And I fortuitously met the man who just got the franchise for Polar in Australia. It was a direct selling business, i.e. party plan. Mm. And uh, I came across a small advertisement in the paper that had nothing to do with cosmetics at all. I met this man and he said, well, maybe you might be interested in this other part of my business, which is cosmetics. And, of course, I looked at him very oddly, like, why would you think I'd be interested in cosmetics? You know, I have a BA, DipEd, BCom, MBA, Prelim. I'm an economist. Cosmetics, I don't think so. Uh, and he said, well, take these products home and try them and see what you think. So I did. And they were fabulous. Mm. They were very high-quality products. I mean, anyone can Google Polar now and see this is really a massive company with a very high-quality product. And then I did some research on what is the market size for cosmetics and skincare in Australia? 
what do women spend on these products? And I just looked in my own bathroom and I saw what I spent and I hadn't even thought about it. It was just what I did. Yeah. So I went to one of his other party plan or product demonstrations in another line that he had and I saw these women sitting in this house spending all this money and I thought, you know, I can do that. Mm. I think I can do that. Um, so I said to him, yes, I, look, it's a great product. I've, I've rung the Japanese consulate. They just were bowing their heads about Polar. It was so well known among the Japanese. Um, I know now how much we spend on cosmetics in Australia. This looks like an interesting opportunity. Well, Peter, three weeks later, after 30 phone calls to persuade someone to have a look at these products in their home, I finally got a presentation. Right. I sold $330 worth of products and two of those women fortuitously said, uh, look, Marcia, we'd like to show our friends this product. Um, by the time I won that award, I had nearly 5,000 women around Australia and New Zealand selling the products. And uh, it was it was a great success story, but it didn't happen overnight, Peter. No, of course not. None of these <laughs> things do. No. Okay, so that was was that really your first taste of being in business for yourself? No. Prior to that, I'd had a little shop in High Street, Armadale. I, I'd been a research economist with the Australian Wool Corporation for ten years, mm. and I knew I wasn't really cut out for the public service. I just, even though I had a wonderful job, I travelled the world. I met the Zenias, I met all the amazing people in the wool industry. I knew that I really wanted to do something else. What that was, I wasn't quite sure, but I had a friend who had a retail business in High Street Armadale in women's clothing, and we started talking about why don't we do something like we've seen in Browns in London, which is to have homewares one side and clothing the other side, which is a very common thing now, but then it was quite unique. Mm. So we did that. We we travelled to France and Italy and found all these fabulous items and yeah. set so, up a shop. Sounds like a, a business that provided junkets as well, Marcia, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love to travel. Yeah. Thank heavens I have, Peter, because I may never travel again in this world. Who knows? <laughs> That'd be so negative, but go on. <laughs> So uh, I opened that shop and at that stage, unfortunately, the rest of my life was falling apart a bit, to be honest. I was uh, in the process of getting a divorce. My husband had lost a lot of money and uh, I found I couldn't have children. So I, there was a, there were a lot of issues. So mm. I thought, look, I don't think this retail story is going to be the big thing I'm really looking for. I don't know what the big thing is, but I sold my share of that business to my business partner. And uh, by coincidence, came across the man who had the franchise for Polar Cosmetics. And that's what I really dedicated myself to for the next 16 years, travelling 150 days a year. Um, honestly, Peter, working, I, I mean, I didn't even know how many hours I worked. You know, at that stage I was divorced. Um, I was trying to rebuild my life financially. You know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. And uh, I was really determined to get my life back into shape. Uh, and I did, mm. you know, through hard work and through, I guess, inspiring and motivating a lot of women to set up their own small businesses, which was the concept of direct selling, that each person who joined the organisation was a contractor with their own sales business and they could build their own sales teams. So, Peter, in a way, even though... I was selling cosmetics. I was actually training women to become business women. Mm. And that was the success of so, Polar. But that in many ways is the fundamental lesson of business leadership, isn't it? That you have to create 
effectively an army of leaders who can carry on the business to permit you to grow it and so on and so forth. So you're not always there making every micro uh, management decision. That is so right. It, it's And it's having that attitude of, of not wanting to hold all the information to yourself, but to train people up and to find people who are better than you. Peter, I wasn't the best salesperson in the company, but I recruited some amazing saleswomen and they made that business really successful. And I helped it remain successful by leading and, you know, directing, I suppose, in a way, and inspiring and motivating women. So, What I want to talk to you about is because, you know, like me, you've, you've travelled a long road of creating businesses and employing people. And, you know, we're both economists as well, so that's a, another interesting <laughs> starting point, which you wouldn't expect that uh, people of the theoretical world could actually achieve it in the real world. But <laughs> And also, we, we do also share the fact that we're, we're asked to speak to other people in business and we reflect upon what we learnt along the way. And I sometimes think about how little despite the fact I had a Master of Commerce from the University of New South Wales, how little I really knew about business. And, and my early stage of business was purely driven by, I think I had a, a perception of what market opportunities were out there and how I could fill that hole. But all the other stuff, which we now, in a sense, teach other people about because we made so many mistakes along the way, then we went looking to learn from other people. Have you reflected upon that, how little you really knew but the value of learning the lesson on the way is what we're sharing with others now. Absolutely. Look, Peter, I honestly knew so little about business. I came from a farm. So, you know, my farm. This is a business, a by the way, but farmers don't. It's a don't business. <laughs> it's a business. But my parents really didn't, they didn't share the finances of their farm. They were very private about that. So, you know, I knew all about the animals and animal husbandry, but I didn't really understand the business side. And, you know, the person who taught me most about business after my uh, retail store was the man who had the franchise for Polar. Mm. And he'd left school when he was. Was 14 years old yeah and my first meeting with him and at that stage he was very successful and and you know had properties around the world and I mean here was I with all these university degrees and I sat down and I just said to him what is the difference between you and I look I've had this amazing education you know two university degrees the MBA prelim and you left school when you were 14 you're a multi-millionaire and here I am looking to you know remake my dollars what is it? And he said, Master, I think I know what it is. And I said, well, please tell me because I'd like to know. And he said, I, I think you think selling is beneath you. Mm, mm. And Peter, that was, that was <laughs> you know, have I reflected on that? My God, selling, selling. You know, here I had been married to a barrister, living in a lovely house in a cool suburb, you know, selling would definitely be, have been well beneath me. And I went home that night and thought, this man has made his fortune from selling. You have to sell something in life to really, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And it was a very, it was a very strong moment. And, and really it was a, a transforming moment for me. And yeah. it had nothing to do with my university degrees. Now, but, but isn't it funny that we, when I discovered that too, you know, that everyone in business is in sales. And I, I think it may have been uh, one of those many American business speakers come to Australia, but they, they might be cliched, but they're based on history and they're based on looking at successful people. It may well have been Jay Abrahams, who's a fantastic uh, business speaker and business thinker. But when I reflected upon it, 
when I was a school teacher, when I was a university lecturer, I was selling stuff then. It's just it was very highbrow stuff, stuff that people like you and me th felt so great about. But you're selling it to often a very unsympathetic audience as well. So, so once you realize that, that you're in sales, you're absolutely right. Last week, I interviewed Bevan Slattery, you know, the, the founder of NextDC and, uh, and, and uh, Megaport, a number of listed companies. And when I asked him what he um, would explain his success from, and I'd like to run this by you, he said, in many ways, I think to be successful in business, you, you actually have to be in business first and realize there's a whole lot of problems that have to be solved, and then you solve those problems, and that's the way you create successful businesses. Have you found that along the way as well? I've had all these slogans. You know, I was one of these people, Peter, who went to every American speaker who came to Australia. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes it was very confronting, as you know, mm. uh, and you think I could never do that. But one of my favorite sayings was, business is a daily problem-solving exercise. Yeah. And when you understand that and you have your problems, you realise, well, this is just business, so don't worry about it. It's just a problem I have to solve instead of, oh, my God, I have a problem. It's a different way of approaching it and it's a very healthy way. Yeah. Do you think being optimistic has helped you as well? Oh, <laughs> it's absolutely essential. I was hoping you were going to ask me about, you know, what I think the personal characteristics of people who are successful are and, and certainly optimism which is not just positive thinking you know positive thinking I think can drive you crazy because you have to be positive all the time and Peter no one is positive all the time we all have moments where we feel down we feel defeated we feel beaten but if we believe that we can get to the end of this tunnel and we've been in this type of situation before and we know other people have and they've got out and we look at, we get things in perspective. We look at what other people go through in life and we say, if they can do it, I can do it. So optimism is a very realistic way of, yes, there is a challenge, but I will get through it, as opposed to, oh, I must be positive all the time, rah, rah, rah. I don't believe in that. Yeah. I, I also learned from John Maxwell, who wrote the book, uh, 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And I actually was talking about um, that with Andrew Bogut, um, you know, the great, um, Melbourneian uh, basketball player only yesterday and, and Maxwell made the point that successful people are committed to self-improvement and uh, I think that's been something that's really staggered me is that the, the more I hung out with better people the more I realised there was a lot more self-improvement I had to uh, engage with. Life is just a learning curve and I think when you stop you know green and growing ripe and rotten and uh, these are sort of all the ideas I got through my sales training, mm. uh, Peter, not through my academic life, you know. In fact, I think academic life can sort of close you down a bit really, but um, through sales training um, I just learned to have all these things in my head that really stood me in good stead when I needed it. And can I tell you, setting up a direct selling company, going into people's homes, selling product is one of the most confronting mm personally confronting things you can do because you're setting yourself up in front of people you know to succeed or fail. And because I had such a, an education before I started that business, um, you know, it was really setting myself up because people said things like, with all your university degrees and your, your experience at the Wool Corporation as a corporate economist, why are you selling skincare? So, yeah. I was really, uh, I was totally committed to success, I can tell you, because yeah. I wasn't going to fail at this. Yeah, it gives real meaning to that old saying that 
just about everything you want in life is just outside your comfort zone. <laughs> exactly. When I'm in my comfort zone, I actually feel really uncomfortable, Peter. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I've kept doing all these things all my life because yeah. I'm constantly putting myself in, you know, I'm out of my comfort zone. I can tell you being on Stonington Council, I'm very out of my comfort zone. Often. <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> I, I should remember that when I'm um, trying to get something done um, with my um, uh, property in, in Hawksburn. Let's let's go to a one question. Like you're the founding director of the Victor Frankel Institute. Tell us about the institute. Uh, well, look, Victor Frankel. I'll tell you how I came across Victor Frankel because it's really quite an interesting story in view of so much depression happening in Australia. I had a friend who was seriously depressed. He was so depressed that he put himself into the Melbourne Clinic. I went in to visit him. And uh, he had beside him on the bed this book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. And I said, oh, tell me about this book because I thought I'd read every motivational book on the planet, but I had not read or seen or heard of Man's Search for Meaning. Mm. And he said, oh, look, I'm too depressed to read it. <laughs> and as you know, often that's the case. Yeah. So I picked up the book and I started to read it and I was utterly and completely absorbed by it. It was just, it was like the ultimate book for me mm. it was about meaning and purpose who's the author made... who's the author victor frankel oh okay victor frankel victor yeah. frankel man's search for meaning mm. um so so the story with victor so i read this mm. and i said to my friend look i think I know, I know why you're depressed i mean i knew why i was depressed the reason he was depressed was because he'd been a very successful businessman very entrepreneurial he just decided to get out of business and guess what peter if you don't have anything to get up to each day, mm, mm. life doesn't have meaning or purpose. So he was very depressed. And I read this book and his friend had given him this book for a reason, but, of course, he was too depressed to read it. So I, I read through the book and I thought, this is amazing. Why? And the whole thing about Viktor Frankl is it's a very optimistic um psychology it's not about oh well tell me your problems did your father smack you when you were two years old and that's why you're psychologically scarred it's really about well tell me about your life and what your purpose in life is mm -hmm. what would make you feel full of meaning and purpose mm -hmm. that's what we need to find for you so if you go into um a Viktor Frankl psychologist, and there aren't many around in Australia, it's quite obvious, um, Peter, you won't be told to lie down and tell me your problems. You'll be told to sit up and let's talk about your life and let's talk about what could give you real meaning and purpose mm -hmm. and understanding what meaning is. So it was just totally fascinated me. And, look, there are three major assumptions, so I'll just go through these because they're really interesting, that life, firstly, life always has meaning. So even when you're going through your toughest times, if you can hold on to that, you'll get stuff out of that time, you know. And, and the time I started Polar, my life was really crashing around me and I, I didn't have Viktor Frankl to grasp onto, but, you know, I knew I'd somehow come out of it. And then the second thing about Victor, that Viktor Frankl says, the greatest desire mankind has is to find meaning in life. That is just a driving force. And then he has a third um, major thing, which is that human beings have freedom of choice. So instead of saying, I've always been like this, or my mother did it to me, or my father did it to me, or my boss did it to me, humans have freedom of choice. We can recalibrate our thinking at any time we decide to do that. Now, there may be people who 
don't have that freedom of choice. But most of the people I talk to in my life do have freedom of choice. They just don't realise they have it. And so um, as opposed to Freud, Viktor Frankl, who was around at the same time as Freud, had a completely different philosophy. So mm. It sounds like um, the philosophy that I um, relate to very much so. One last thing, uh, Marcia, you do work with the CEO Institute and other and CEOs. Do you, do you find that CEOs may well be good at what they do, but they have other issues in their life where the Frankel philosophy actually helps you get more out of um, a CEO's life and as a consequence, as, as he or she improves that part of the f- life that's failing, they then get a better overall business performance? I, I think it goes back to that point of finding meaning and purpose in what you're doing, Peter. So if you're doing something that um, doesn't have much real value in it, you're just doing it because you have to pay. I mean, paying the mortgage is really important. Yeah. But if you can get a little bit beyond that, bit, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the higher we go up, the more motivated we are. And, you know, I started off at Polar, I just needed to put to put money on the table. I had to start paying my bills. So that was the starting point. And then as I progressed through the business, it became very different. I'm now training women to, to, to have better lives. And so it just became so um, meaningful for me, that business. And I think most businesses can have that sort of um, part to them where you're helping other people. And I listen to my CEOs. And look, I've got amazing CEOs in my group. I'm so impressed with them, Peter. They're not just people who look after the dollar. They're after a dollar, of course, because they put a lot of effort in. But they talk about their staff and their team with love. You know, these people really have empathy for the people they work with. And uh, so I think working in a small business with the right sort of business leader is very rewarding for people. And uh, I'm I'm very impressed with, you know, we were talking the other day with one of my groups about how their empathy for their staff had increased enormously through COVID because, you know, in Victoria, we're all stuck at home. Mm. And so reaching out to people and listening to their stories and, you know, if you're a single mother working from home with three kids, it's pretty tough. So you as the boss have to be very empathetic. I mean, on the one hand, you have to keep your business going, but you have to understand the person's personal life. So one of my CEOs was really talking very passionately about how he thought he'd been an empathetic boss, but leader, should I say, Uh, but he realised through COVID that he had to do a lot more work around empathy and how it had really brought his team together and they were very motivated and very um, self-driven people. It was great. One last one, Griffin and Rowe. When did you start it? When did you sell it? Um, I had Griffin and Rowe for eight years. It's yep. this little product here. It was based on a an Aboriginal medicinal plant extract and it sort of came out of my polar years. I've always loved skincare and I came across, you know, once again, somebody said to me, you could probably do something with this ingredient. And by coincidence, I um, ran into the then CEO of Target, told her about the product. She said we could be interested. 
you know, the, the the buyer, I met with the buyer. The buyer said, oh, we need it in the store in four months' time. Well, Peter, I hadn't even thought about how I present it, how I package it. It was that, honestly, mm. of all the stresses in my life, I think getting that product into Target in four months was the most stressful thing yeah, I'd ever done. That. Yeah, yeah. It was terrifying because remember with direct selling, it's a completely different concept. Mm. And so here I was and I was told if you don't get your products into Target at this time on this day, they'll be rejected. So the pressure I was under then uh, was huge. So we went into Target. We got it going there. But as you know, the story of Target has not been a great right story. Mm. And uh, unfortunately, the idea, they had the idea at this stage of having sort of the boutique end in each department. And we were to be the boutique end of mm. cosmetics. It didn't quite work out that way. So we took the product out, went into pharmacies, sold online, and then I sold out about four years ago. Mm. And fortunately, Peter, I still get a, a lifelong supply of my own product, which is great. Great stuff. Now, Marcia, uh, if anyone wants to catch up with your work, what's the best website for people to go to? Well, look, it's really best to – I hope this sounds very old-fashioned, Peter, but because I do so many things, I, I, my website's not really very active around my – because I should tell you about my, my new book, which is called Finding New Meaning in Life, yeah. based yeah. on Viktor Frankl. Yeah. My, yeah. First, my first book was based on the success in my cosmetic business yeah. called High Heeled Success. Yeah. My second book was is the meaning, Finding New Meaning in Life. So you can get that on the site, but otherwise email me, talk to me, you know, so, so that's I'm, Griffin, I'm Griffin Marcia at Outlook.com. That's right. That's right. That is honestly the quickest way to uh, please don't send anything by messenger or any other of these complicated things. Yeah. Just email me. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Great to talk Thanks, to you again, Peter. Marcia, and keep up the good work help, helping people grow their businesses and their lives. Well, that's the show for today. I'm going out to shoot a few hoops and invest in a few startup companies. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next week. Quentin time! Thank you.